Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by guests Robin Rotman and Amber Spriggs to discuss the role of data in environmental justice. Robin is an Assistant Professor of Energy and Environmental Law and Policy at the University of Missouri-Columbia and is also a qualified lawyer focusing on energy, environmental and natural resource issues. In addition, she's a counsel at Van Ness Feldman, a law firm in Washington, D.C. And Amber is a civil engineering master's student at the University of Missouri-Columbia with a research focus on hydrology, hydraulic engineering, GIS-based risk assessment, and flood insurance policy. Robin and Amber, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, hi, Genevieve. Thank you. So this is the first time we've had two guests on the show at the same time. The reason why we're doing this is because Amber is one of Robin's research students. And much of the research we'll be talking about in this episode around environmental justice is work they've collaborated on. So how did you two come to be working together on this research? So um, after I finished my bachelor's at the University of Missouri in civil engineering, I started working for the city of Columbia as a municipal engineering intern. Um, for the sewer and stormwater utility, and I became interested in pursuing my master's in civil engineering with a water and environmental emphasis. So I started working with Dr. Kate Trout, who is an engineering professor and awesome person, um, and she works for the University of Missouri as well. As I was sort of discussing potential research projects and ideas that I had, uh, we both kind of realized that I had a lot of interest in policy and regulatory compliance in engineering. And so Kate connected me with Robin and the three of us have been working together since then. Okay, so it wasn't that one of you advertised to try and find the other. It was sort of a matchmaker type situation, I guess. Yeah, we actually met for the first time at a farmer's market in Colombia. So just kind of ran into each other that way. So it wasn't a deliberately set up meeting. It was just a lucky coincidence. I was at the farmer's market, not in my role as a professor, um, but just doing a volunteer activity with a community group that I'm involved in. And so Amber came up and introduced herself. Uh, and then we made the connection, realizing that um, that Kate Troth had suggested that we connect. And not long after that, um, Amber began her master's program and the three of us started working together. How long ago has it been? Year and a half. Yeah. So Amber's in the home stretch. So it's a, it's basically a 24 month program. And so she'll be graduating this August. One thing I find very interesting about the two of you is that even though you're both environmental scientists, both of you also bring another school skill set to the mix. So law in the case of Robin and civil engineering in the case of Amber. So what I'd like to hear from both of you is why did you choose to combine environmental science with a second skill set rather than just focusing on one discipline or another? So I'll throw that question to Robin first. Sure. Well, I'd say I'd had an interest in the environment ever since I was a small child. I always enjoyed playing outside. Um, I enjoyed environmental science or science classes when I was in school. And so I went to college and chose to major in geology. 
uh, with an emphasis in water quality. Um, my last year of college, I was selected as a Rhodes Scholar, and so I had the opportunity to spend two years at the University of Oxford in England uh, doing a master's program in water science policy and management. And throughout my undergraduate and graduate studies, I developed that environmental science skill set um, that, that you mentioned. But I also came to feel like there was another component that was needed for advancing environmental protection. And that was the legal and policy side. Frankly, and I think, I mean, I made that choice 20 years ago, but I think it's still true today, which is in many cases, the science is further ahead than the policy and further ahead than the laws and regulations. And so I felt that getting additional legal training and becoming a qualified attorney would better enable me uh, to work protecting the environment throughout my career. It's always been this idea that, you know, you with lawyers, they're the people who are really good at English at school and not so great at maths. I would imagine that there wouldn't be that many lawyers who actually have science degrees as well. Well, it's funny. Well, it's funny you say that. And um, just talking about the study of maths and thinking back to how we met, yeah. um, over 20 years ago, so I did uh, a semester abroad at the ANU in Canberra. When we were both 10. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. As child prodigies. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so Genevieve was my first friend in Australia and really the one who I've kept in touch with over many years. Um, you know, I think that certain fields of the law do attract people with science or engineering or technical backgrounds. And I think environmental law is one of them. Um, maybe another one is intellectual property, especially on the patent side. I think that you are right that primarily law is is drawing upon a verbal communication skill set, a written communication skill set. But it's also drawing on analytical abilities, abilities in in rational thought, in in analysis and in synthesis. And so those are the same skills. Um, that many scientists, many analysts, many technical experts can bring to the field. What about you, Amber? Why did you choose to combine civil engineering with environmental science? So similar to Robin, I've always had an interest in environmental issues. Um, also just love outdoor recreation and being in touch with the environment. And I also really liked my math and science classes and problem solving growing up. And so with some encouragement from friends and family members who are engineers, I thought that a good path would be through civil engineering with like a water and environmental emphasis to kind of combine these skills and look at environmental issues through a lens of um, sustainable design and problem solving through civil engineering. Um, Something that also excites me about civil engineering and like water and stormwater management specifically is that the field is kind of moving towards more nature-based natural solutions to um, water problems. So um, kind of trying to design with nature and go back to those natural processes for like cleaning water and managing water is something that I'm passionate about and excited about. Sounds like you and Robin are both coming at the same problems, but from quite different perspectives. Have you seen that play out in the work that you do together? When I'm hiring graduate students, I, I like to work with students who come from 
someone of a different background who can complement my skill sets. So I want to mentor them. Um, but so I can bring the law and policy knowledge. Um, Amber is a technical genius. And in, in a few moments, she's going to talk in detail about some of the data analytics that she's been doing in the area of environmental justice. And, you know, like I, I understand how these tools function at a conceptual level. Um, but if you put me down at the computer and I had to actually run the analysis with the software, you know, I wouldn't know where to begin. And so her skill set has been a huge addition to my research team. And hopefully, hopefully I've also been able to bring a new element into her research um, with opportunities like this one, doing more um, public communication of research and more, more of an advocacy component to the work. And that's a good segue into the topic of this episode. The topic, the role of data in environmental justice, that was suggested by Robin. Prior to the conversation that led to this episode, I'd heard of social justice, but I hadn't come across the term environmental justice before. So I think it's a term that's used in the US, but it hasn't really become established in Australia. I did Google it after our conversation and I've seen it on some websites here, but they tend to be in the context of law, which is beyond my area of expertise. For those listeners like myself who are also unfamiliar with the term, could you explain what's meant by environmental justice, Robin? Yeah, I'd love to. And so let me say from the outset, uh, you know, my voice gives it away that I am based in the U.S. And so this is a term of art in the U.S. Certainly it's a problem um, or an issue that's relevant worldwide, um, but I'll be speaking to it primarily from a U.S. perspective because that is where my legal practice and where my academic research has focused. Um, so with that caveat, I thought I'd I'd actually read the official definition of what environmental justice is. And then with that formality aside, then we can talk more casually about, about what the movement means. So today, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, which is our environmental quality regulator at the federal level, defines environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. And then the EPA has made a clarifying comment by saying that, quote, um, this goal will be achieved when everyone enjoys the same degree of protection from environmental and health hazards and equal access to the decision-making process to have a healthy environment in which to live, learn, and work. So using that official definition, there's really two components. One is a more substantive component, if you will, which is looking at equitable environmental quality for all people, the equitable distribution of environmental benefits and burdens and ensuring a basic level of environmental health and environmental quality for all residents. So that, that's more of a substantive component. There's also more of a procedural justice component, which is the ability to participate in the decision-making process for decisions relating to environmental law and regulations. 
So that's the official definition um, from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency today. With that definition of environmental justice, it sounded like a definition that was made up by a lawyer. (laughs) Hey, now. (laughs) And lawyers are wonderful people. I've got one on my program. But for those of us who haven't got a law degree from Yale, as certain guests do, what does that actually mean? Well, so let me go into a little bit of history. And and I think that that will illuminate what the goals of the movement were. So the, the quote unquote environmental justice movement, as we call it today, really was an outgrowth of the civil rights movement in the United States in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And if we were to identify like one event that launched the environmental justice movement. I mean, there were a number of key developments, but it's commonly said to be a a strike of sanitation workers. So a labor strike of sanitation workers in the city of Memphis, Tennessee, where two black or African-American garbage collectors were crushed to death um, by a garbage truck while they were working. And so citywide about Uh, 1,300 sanitation workers went on strike, demanding a safer working condition and a living wage. And the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. participated in that movement and in that strike in order to secure better working conditions. Um, So that was really the event that perhaps for the first time in the public eye brought together civil rights and racial justice with the idea of environmental equity and environmental health. Now, maybe you could technically say, well, that was more of like a workplace safety issue. But in the years that followed, um, in the 1970s and early 1980s, there were more and more events that captured the public attention that showed that, for example, um, hazardous waste facilities or facilities that were generating a lot of pollution were overwhelmingly located in poor communities or black or brown communities. And so you you can't really separate the environmental justice movement from the civil rights movement. If you fast forward for a moment to today, I'd say right now environmental justice is a much broader term that encompasses things like um, food availability, or you hear the term like food deserts. Uh, So it has to do with food access. It has to do with access to municipal services. Um, It has to do with transportation access. So things that are sort of broader than the original scope of the movement. Um, But it's it's really a question of fairness in terms of environmental quality, fairness in the distribution of pollution, fairness in the access to environmental and community benefits, and the again, the ability to participate in the decision-making process. And I'd say that one you know, it can sort of feel like, okay, and the ability to participate, like, well, what good is that? But if you had to pick one that was the most important, I would say the the ability to have meaningful participation, like the ability to have your voice heard in the decision-making process is probably of the greatest benefit to underserved communities whose voices have not been heard for so long. What you've described, these are all problems that we have here. I mean, that's a fact that the poorest socioeconomic areas have fewer amenities, fewer trees, poorer access to public transport, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, we might not call it environmental justice, but it's definitely something that has been commented on in the newspapers. But one of the things that this made me wonder about, so you've sort of got a chicken and egg problem. A lot of these areas are so poor socioeconomic areas because the lack of amenities and the lack of public transport, et cetera, et cetera, they are things that put off people who could afford to live in an area that is has all those things. So that drives the prices up in the areas that have the amenities and drives the prices down in the areas that don't. And if you were to build a factory in one of the better areas, that would drive prices down and attract people from a poorer socioeconomic background. How do you spread these things? Because if you've got something that people don't want, that's going to drive down prices and always result in that being a poorer socioeconomic area. Yeah, I think you're raising an excellent point. I mean, there's a few things in there that you said. One is, you know, there's always going to be better neighborhoods and rougher neighborhoods. Um, Another is if you ran a company or you were working for a government enterprise or so forth, and you needed to find land to build a facility, you would probably look for land that was of lower cost, which tends to be in poorer areas. Um, You might also look to site the facility in an area where there wouldn't be strong public opposition. And there tends to be less opposition in lower income communities. And there's many reasons for that. Some of it is maybe it doesn't capture the national attention. Maybe it's that everybody in the community is working three jobs. And so they don't have the the time to devote to this participatory process. Um, Maybe the process itself isn't being conducted in a manner that is conducive to their participation. So, so what I would say is this, yes. And I think, I think in the U S today, like EJ is such a buzzword, like it's thrown around in the political arena. Um, there's almost like we have this term called greenwashing, which is when, um, for example, a a company advertises its product as being eco-friendly, but then it's like, well, what does that even mean? And that term can just be sort of thrown around without regard. And now we have like EJ washing where people are like, oh, we are like our company is conscious of environmental justice. And then if you're like, oh, okay, so what do you do? Like, how does that manifest in sort of a day to day basis? There may not be a lot of details. It may just more be an expression of of support of the principle. But but okay, so to your point, like, well, how do you square that circle? I have a couple of responses to that. One is it's not like a black or white, like, should we, um, should the government issue the permit or deny the permit for a facility to be cited or continue to operate? Um, There's a large range of discretion in terms of how will that facility be designed? What will the operational parameters be? Um, how, How clean is clean enough? That's a huge question when we talk about cleanup of hazardous waste or other contaminated sites. And so driving forward for higher standards of environmental protection is one response. Another point that I wanted to raise, and I was going to talk about it later, but let me let me bring it up now, which is in communities that are overburdened by pollution, it's often not like there's one really bad facility that's just causing all the damage. It's 
often the cumulative impacts, like a death by a, a thousand cuts, where, you know, here's the trash incinerator, and then here's the oil refinery, and here's, you know, so on and so forth of different industries, um, which facilities, each of which individually are maybe fully in compliance with the terms of their permits, um, but in aggregate have a, a real negative effect on environmental quality in the community. And then add to that, like, say, all the truck traffic that is needed to move materials in and out of these facilities. So we know the the reality is that communities experience the cumulative impacts of all of these facilities and decisions. But yet the, the laws and the regulations and the permit writing process hasn't quite caught up with that reality. Um, it still tends to treat individual applicants or individual facilities on an individual basis. Um, and that obscures the holistic impacts just as we were coming on to the podcast, I saw a press release issued by the EPA. I haven't even read the document yet because I literally just saw the press release, but it's titled EPA releases updated legal guidance on identifying, addressing cumulative impacts to advance environmental justice and equity. And so I look forward to reading that. And I, I'm glad to see that there is increased attention now on these cumulative impacts analysis. I think this is a good segue into how data plays a part because as a data scientist, as you're talking, I'm thinking, ah, so this is where the data people come in. Am I right? Yeah. And I, if I could, could I just talk very briefly about the role that data played in the early stages of the movement, like way before Amber was born, and then kind of turn the reins over <laughs> to her to talk about data use in the modern day? Sounds good. <laughs> okay. So I, I mentioned that sanitation worker strike in Memphis in 1968, often regarded as one of the key developments in the environmental justice movement. Another one um, would be from 1982. So, so fast forward to 1982, when an African-American low-income community in the state of North Carolina was selected as the location of a hazardous waste landfill. And what had happened, I, I won't go into this detail, but at least in the U.S., maybe this is in Australia too, like with with dirt roads, a practice in the past was to spray those down with oil to control dust. And so what had happened is there was a contractor who had received PCB-laden waste oil. So he had a waste oil hauling business and then had used this oil to spray down roads to control dust. But PCB is highly... And so all of this... PCB-laden soil had to be dug up and needed to be um, disposed of properly. And so this community in Warren County, North Carolina, was selected as the location. This time, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, so NAACP, staged a large protest, with, um, went for over six weeks, um, with like about 550 people arrested. And this really gained public attention on the issue of of where these types of facilities are located. One of the participants in that rally was a congressional representative, Walter Fontroy, who was the congressman from Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia. So when he got back to D.C., he used his powers as a congressman to commission a study by a body then called the General Accounting Office. Now we call it the government 
Accountability Office, which is an independent watchdog agency, basically like the sort of the private investigator arm of Congress, which is, or you could say like an internal auditor of Congress or whatever, which exists to conduct research studies when requested by Congress. So he commissioned this study. The study was called Citing Hazardous Waste Landfills and Their Correlation with Racial and Economic Status of Surrounding Communities. So this came out a year later in 1983, and it found that all hazardous waste sites in the southeastern U.S. were located in low-income communities, and 75% of hazardous waste sites were located in predominantly African-American communities. So that was the government report. Four years later, a faith-based organization, um, the United Church of Christ, conducted their own study or commissioned their own study called Toxic Waste and race. And this is still considered a seminal document. Um, and this analysis concluded that race was the most significant factor in citing hazardous waste facilities nationally. And further, that 60% of African Americans and Hispanics lived in a community with at least one hazardous waste site. So it was this early analysis that ultimately captured the attention of the public and then of the elected leadership and which in 1994 led to President Bill Clinton signing an executive order. Um, an executive order is like an order from the president to his or her own executive branch agencies. And so his order was to direct all of the federal agencies and their employees to be cognizant of these issues of environmental injustice and to attempt to remedy this in their decision-making process. That is the order that is still operative today. Uh, President Biden and other presidents have have made subsequent orders also regarding environmental justice. But that was the first legal development at a federal level to recognize this as a national priority. What I think is really interesting about that story is the fact that it was a faith-based organization that led to some of this research because... A church back in the 1980s, it's not exactly, no, would, wouldn't exactly have been a hub for data science. And yet they recognize the importance of data even back then. It is interesting. And I, you know, this is taking me outside of my professional expertise, but faith-based organizations play a very interesting role in the American political life. Um, certainly, played and continue to play a prominent role in civil rights issues. I, I agree with you, though, that it is unique to see that this type of analysis was produced by a faith-based organization. If we skip forward 50 years to 2023, where we all carry around computers in our pockets that are probably more powerful than whatever mainframes they had back in the 1970s, how is data being used now to achieve environmental justice? So I think the main lens at looking at environmental justice is geographic information systems, because generally you have you know, demographic information as well as environmental risk, and it's all very location-based to see where disadvantaged communities are and what kind of environmental risks people in those communities are exposed to. And in 2015, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency um, established an online GIS mapping tool called EJScreen, 
that compiles a lot of publicly available data from the census. So every 10 years, um, the U.S. government gathers demographic information for everybody living in the U.S. Um, so census data is there, as well as environmental data from the EPA on drinking water quality, as well as groundwater, underground injection wells, anything that is regulated by the EPA. They have um, point data systems and GIS, as well as layers that sort of so show the state and national percentile ranking for risk to various um, environmental hazards. So I'll, I'll pull up EJ's screen right now and list a few examples. Some pollution you can look at these layers for is particulate matter, ozone, lead paint, super fun proximity and hazardous waste proximity. So if I'm looking at any community in the US, I can pull up these data layers and see um, what percentile of risk these community members are compared to their individual state and compared to the national average. I think a big challenge with these sort of national level screening tool data sources is that the more you zoom in on an individual community, the less accurate they get just because um, it's difficult to get a lot of precision in local um, local risk assessment without spending a lot of money on gathering data and testing water and testing air quality. But these tools are very useful for generally seeing trends within metropolitan areas as well as rural areas where environmental risk is overlapping with those demographic indicators such as low income or linguistically isolated communities or um, less than a high school education is also one that we consider a lot in stakeholder engagement is on the engineering side. So I think geographic information systems mostly is how we're looking at environmental justice. I'll have a look at that AJ screen on the internet in preparation for this episode. Is that tool built using Esri ArcGIS? Yes. Yeah, it's an ArcGIS online web viewer. And then you can also download, you can download statistics in just the form of a CSV file. You can also input that information into like a desktop ArcGIS and do more advanced analysis with that. So that's really good because even though this is a tool that's very specific to the U.S., if someone wanted to replicate this in a country outside of the US, ArcGIS is what pretty much the market leader in geospatial analysis. So if you're doing that sort of analysis, you've probably got access to it and you could just look at something like that and try and replicate it in your own country. Right, right. And they are very, very much clear with EJ Screen that all of it's publicly available data. So even though it's publicly available in the US, if you're familiar with government structure in other countries, I have friends doing research for, in other countries that are just mm. trying to get similar data into GIS. Yeah, in Australia, we've pretty much copied the US approach of open data. So just like you have your open data websites, we also have our open data websites where government organisations provide data to the community. In addition to EJ Screen, uh, it's interesting to see, especially in the past year or two, 
several other federal agencies have come up with their own sort of environmental justice screening tools. Um, the Council on Environmental Quality has one called CGES, which is Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool. And then also our Department of Health and Human Services just released another tool that focuses more on public health and environmental risk. So there's a lot of different agencies kind of going at it from slightly different angles, but it's all public online GIS tools. That's fantastic. Who would be the target users of these tools? Well, that that's a harder question than it seems. In terms of the online viewers, these are meant to be accessible to the general public. So for communities themselves, like local government or county government, to help them perhaps understand where vulnerable populations are located uh, within their jurisdictional territory or where resource gaps or um, particular pollution hotspots are located. Um, And then to be able to use that information when advocating for themselves, for example, for state and federal funding. Another hope is that this data would be used by decision makers at the state and federal level, like not just for the allocation of funds, but with regards to the issuance of permits, with regard to infrastructure investment and long-term planning. What is provided on the web is a screening tool and a simple visualization. The web-based viewer is a viewer that allows demographic factors to be layered atop environmental quality factors. More meaningful engagement with the data takes place in the form that Amber explained, which is in downloading the open source data and having professionals be able to analyze that data using their own desktop-based GIS software. And not all local governments, not all nonprofit organizations, certainly not all just the typical person on the street has access to that data. I can't speak for the EPA, but I think the goal was to put forward a information in a way that could be used differently by different categories of users and to at least make something available to the general public to help individuals visualize what was going on in their community. So it's a different level approach or a layered approach for people who aren't data scientists or engineers. They can just make use of this viewer to get basic statistics But if you want to do any in-depth analysis, then you'd get a data scientist or someone like Amber who really understands the data to use the proper tools to analyze it. Yeah, that's a great point. And kind of considering who who your listeners may be, some may be uh, just individuals who are interested in the topic. Um, And so this would provide a level of data that they could um, understand and utilize Absolutely, you're right, though, that some of this functionality would certainly be better placed in professional hands so that it can be analyzed in a more fulsome manner. Amber can talk a little bit about, there are some, I mean, EJ Screen is primarily a data visualization tool. There are some reports that can be generated. Those are fairly simplistic, but Amber, maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, if you, um, you can do some buffering and that on EJ screen, so say I have a site that I'm potentially using for um, an infrastructure project, I could put a, take the radius of say five to 10 miles um, out from that project site and then gather or output a, they have like a report. So you can get statistics on 
where wastewater discharges are within that radius, um, what is the traffic proximity, various hazards that are more specifically tailored to your project. So say, for example, it's a public transit project I'm doing, I would want to look at current transportation needs and where more dense population is and what's going on already and how my project would change that community, I guess. But yeah, the output is some pretty basic statistics on all of the parameters that you're interested in. So it's sort of a data analyst versus a data scientist type approach. So this is for the data analysts. And then the next step on is for the data scientists. Yeah. And I would say a big caveat with EJ screen is that there there are a lot of in, there are a lot of environmental risks that we know about. And there's also some that we kind of don't know about or are still understanding and still learning how to quantify. And so it, it can't provide a comprehensive picture of environmental risk, especially like I said, as you're getting down to a, a very small geographic area. But for now, maybe the best we can do in conjunction with working with local officials and local scientists and data scientists and engineers who know more about what's happening sort of on the ground. How have you used EJ Screen or the data that the EPA is providing through EJ Screen in your own work, Amber? Well, I'm very interested in natural hazards and risk for hazards, especially in relation to how precipitation patterns are changing with climate change. So I am looking at um, hydraulic analysis of flood risk as well as how flood risk changes in a wildfire burn scar. So in the Western US, we have quite a few events where after a wildfire is fully contained, when a very high intensity precipitation event comes through, there's actually very high risk for debris flow and landslides through there. So I've been looking at where risk for these events is overlapping with less advantaged communities, specifically because I'm a civil engineer, I'm also looking for where these environmental risks are happening, where people are living, and where they inf- affect infrastructure. So um, looking at population and demographic information, as well as EJ Screen has some climate risk maps on there, for instance, the 100-year floodplain, projected sea level rise, and things like that. So overlaying all this information to select a site for my hydraulic modeling um, research then in the works. <laughs> I guess that's a good application of it. Researchers like yourself and others can use this as a tool for working out where to conduct their research. As researchers, so my, so my research is more on the qualitative side, looking at the human dimensions of natural resources. And there's a push and pull in the sense that the most vulnerable communities perhaps could benefit the most from robust research that um, document their vulnerabilities and propose a path for reducing those vulnerabilities that then can be used by those communities themselves when seeking additional resources or seeking to influence the policy process. By the same time, vulnerable communities tend to be overstudied, and research itself is not not without its costs. There's a risk of 
Um, for example, I'm going to be conducting some interviews of residents in a community here in Missouri that have been subject to chronic flooding. Discussing that issue can be traumatic and it can it can bring up strong emotions and it can bring up bad memories and it can make people anxious about what is yet to come. And so as researchers or as a researcher, it's very important to me to consider holistically what the impact of our research is and how to ensure that our research is being done not just in an ethical manner, but in a way that does not further take from the community or further traumatize the community, but rather in a way that can help give a community a voice. And some of that is is um, on the human side, just like where we're invited in and not barging in where we're not invited. Um, Amber's work is predominantly done on the on the computer side, looking at at the landscape. And so she won't be interviewing, say, individual residents in these locations. Um, but when we are on the ground doing that kind of social science research, we need to be sensitive as to whether the community even wants us there. And I think that's something that we as data scientists need to be cognizant of. Behind each of these data points is an actual human being. And I think a lot of people get into data science because they want to stay away from those actual human beings. But sometimes to get the whole story, you have to go out and have that conversation. And that involves a certain level of emotional intelligence. I think engineers are similar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can find people of all sorts in all disciplines. That's for sure. This is where, you know, I think it could be useful to make a point on the meaningful involvement aspect of environmental justice, because I think no matter how great your infrastructure, well, I'm speaking from an infrastructure point of view, but no matter how good your design is, it's never going to be functional unless people use it and it's what people want in the community. So really making sure you're engaging with the people who you're designing for and the people who you're working for is really key to environmental justice. And I think there's a few, we kind of mentioned earlier, a few data areas that are available through these screening tools, but um, something such as like where linguistically isolated populations are or where people have limited access to internet can kind of help the stakeholder engagement side where okay, if someone has limited access to internet, maybe we shouldn't have public meetings on Zoom and we should be going to community centers and talking to people that way. And so all of these very small steps on the local scale can be really useful in engaging people and making sure we're really working towards meaningful involvement. And even in communities where they do have adequate internet access, one of the things that I've found, this is something my mother's, talk to me about is she's not comfortable using the internet so she would rather have a face-to-face meeting so if you limit something to just zoom-based meetings you could be excluding people on the basis of age Mm -hmm. age is another factor it's another layer that can be seen so population under five focusing on the unique environmental vulnerabilities of young children. But yeah, also over age 65, also looking at um, disabled population. So that might additionally be a factor in terms of where you're locating these public meetings. With all of these things you've been talking about, 
as we alluded to earlier in this episode, these are techniques that I would imagine would achieve good in other social justice areas just beyond environmental justice. Yeah, I think um, you're raising a great point. So we're coming at this from the environmental science side, but some of these same indicators, for example, uh, literacy levels or linguistic isolation that impacts public participation in the environmental decision process. But that's also great data for school districts to have. That's great data for public libraries to have when it comes to information about access to broadband internet, uh, that affects the ability to have small businesses um, in all, all forms of economic development. And so these same indicators are relevant to so many different social and policy issues beyond simply environmental health. One of the things that struck to my mind when I was listening to you two speaking was a story that I heard a number of years ago and was actually one of the stories that inspired me to go into data science. And it was about how the New York City Mayor's Office data analytics team had combined geospatial data relating to the location of restaurants in the city with data relating to the locations of sewer blockages. These were blockages that were resulting from the dumping of oil and grease. And by overlaying those two layers in, I don't know, an ArcGIS type tool, they were able to work out who the likely restaurants were that were dumping and then send the investigators out there to see them How doing cool. it and find them. I thought that was the most awesome yeah, thing ever. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that's why I wanted to be a data scientist. I wanted to go and work for uh, Mayor Bloomberg's Office for Data Analytics or something. Well, you still can. It'll be easier to see each other. Clearly, a lot of data scientists are going to love to get involved in this sort of area. I know the actuarial community is very passionate about applying their data skills in the climate change area. And I would imagine anyone who's passionate about that sort of thing would also be passionate about environmental justice. But on the flip side, you know, Robin, have you seen many lawyers making use of data? Uh, for example, in legal proceedings? Absolutely. Um, and this is common, particularly in the environmental law context. So you, you don't actually often see that many cases that allege an environmental injustice. That would be a claim that would be brought under the Civil Rights Act. And to prevail under the Civil Rights Act, um, a plaintiff has to prove an intent to discriminate. And that is a very onerous standard on the plaintiff. It's um, not enough to prove a discriminatory effect, but rather that there was an intention. Where I find data is most often used and where there's the most potential is more on the tort side. And so what a, a tort is, basically anything that's not a contract claim. So a slip and fall, medical malpractice, um, all sorts of claims. And one type of tort is a toxic tort. So that relates to environmental contamination. These are often class action cases. So many plaintiffs, like in a community, that have been affected. So Erin Brockovich type thing. Yes, exactly. Erin Brockovich, um, in my one of the classes I teach in environmental law, we do a mock trial exercise based on the movie, A Civil Action, which is based on the real life case from Woburn, Massachusetts, where there's a, a toxic tort. 
And, and what's hard for plaintiffs to prove in toxic tort cases, there's like four elements that they have to prove. But typically the hardest one for them to prove is that the defendant's conduct caused their injury. Uh, so maybe maybe you can show that the defendant was discharging certain pollutants, but to show that those pollutants made it from point A to point B, and then once they got to point B, had a certain uh, effect on health of people living there, uh, that requires advanced science. <laughs> and if we look back to like in the 60s and 70s, when we were awakening to the reality of, of hazardous waste, there just sometimes wasn't a way to prove, you know, it's okay, well, it seems like probably the groundwater's flowing this way. And so probably it ended up below the school and probably it's really bad to have a lot of gasoline underneath the school. But, you know, epidemiology, hydrogeology, um, these fields have advanced so significantly in the past 50 years. And so more and more science is being used in the courtroom, both on the plaintiff side and on the defense side when it comes to toxic tort claims. So I could imagine an environmental lawyer like you would get a civil engineer or water engineer like Amber to come in as an expert witness in one of your cases. Absolutely. And what we have, I, I it's my understanding that the U.S. has a bit of a different approach to expert witnesses um, than Australia does. But here, each side will retain its own expert. And so you'll get this phenomenon of dueling experts where you'll get two people who are PhD qualified scientists or engineers with their um, many years of experience. And one of them gets up there and says, you know, they've got the highest uh, professional certifications and they are absolutely convinced that the chemical caused the cancer. And here's all the really good reasons why. And then on the other side, you have somebody equally well qualified with an equally impressive analysis who determines that, you know, it wasn't a factor at all. Um, and that puts the jury in a difficult position because, of course, the jurors are not experts in science and neither is the judge. I'm thinking of an episode of Bull here. So, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. Do you think data science and analytics are going to become increasingly important for lawyers going forward? Yeah, I think that probably the greatest strides are in the criminal justice space, um, which is outside of my specialization. I know that Amber had some thoughts about the growing role of data in AI. This actually leads into my final couple of questions. Is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to be important in the next, say, three to five years? So I'd like to hear from both of you. So um, Amber, what do you think? Not that it's not already prevalent, but remote sensing and satellite imagery in the sort of monitoring of these environmental risk factors is increasingly important, especially as climate change is changing risk for natural hazards. Um, having that real-time data from, from satellites has been very useful, at least for me in my research, and I think for helping communities that are at increased risk in the near future. And what are your thoughts, Robin? Well, so so here I am a professor in the School of Natural Resources, which is part of the College of Agriculture, Food, and Natural Resources. Uh, and I think there is an enormous potential for the use of AI and data science in the agricultural sector. There are great benefits that this technology can bring in terms of optimizing yields, in terms of 
adding resilience to the sector in the face of climate change, which here in Missouri we see in the form of both prolonged droughts and then intense flooding. There's certainly, though, a social barrier to that. I mean, there's a there's a logistical barrier, which is a lack of rural broadband. There's a social barrier, which is a suspicion of the government, a suspicion of private industry that may be invading rights to privacy. And and I and I think those are perfectly appropriate concerns. And so where I'm going is that there is a lot of space where this technology could be used in the rural environment. But again, only if people living in the rural environment want it and welcome it. And um, it's hard to want or welcome something that seems like a threat. It's hard to want or welcome something that you don't really understand how it works. And I think that this is an area where your listeners or other professionals in data science or in businesses that employ AI is explaining the functionality and explaining what um, protections are in place to protect data um, in order to help the public feel safer using this type of technology. I mean, like in anything, you hear about things that go wrong. So, you know, you get a notice when there's been some data breach of some uh, vendor that has your password. You know, every day we all have many transactions that that probably use AI in some form that go unnoticed because everything goes smoothly. And so it's it's when there's a problem, though, it comes to top of mind. We had two major data breaches in Australia just before Christmas. So in Australia, we're all very sensitive about data breaches right now. Cybersecurity is also very far out of my world of expertise, but I, everybody is talking about it and there's tons of work in that world. So I think that's also very big. I think the more we end up going down that rabbit hole of data, the internet, AI, the more people are going to become sensitive about data privacy, cybersecurity, et cetera, et cetera. What final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? Well, well, this may seem simplistic, but the quality of the outputs of analysis turn on the quality of data inputs. And so we've seen this in our environmental justice and environmental science work, which is when you don't have quality data going in, you don't have quality analysis going out. And, and that's been true, you know, since the beginning of time or whatever. I think where it becomes perhaps more of something to be mindful of is that now we have, we can make a beautiful visualization. We can make data look really good. It looks really clean. And that can give the impression that it's accurate. And so just because you can create like a beautiful map that layers all of these relevant factors on top of each other, and then it generates this like really sharp looking report, no matter how sharp it looks, it's really only as accurate as the data that went into it. Also, even if it is accurate, it has to be conveyed in a way that communicates things in a non-misleading manner. Absolutely. I saw this visualization on LinkedIn and it was showing, it was comparing the average height of adults in all these different countries. And you basically had the people who were the tallest were from the Netherlands and the people who are in who were the smallest I think might have been from Indonesia and 
but the way it was done, they were basically half the size of the people from the Netherlands. So it looked like these giants from the Netherlands were coming to crush everyone else in the world. And it was because the scale of it started at five foot as opposed to starting at zero. And it was a completely misleading visualization. Even if accurate. Yeah. 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 It was accurate. It was just misleading. You know, I wanted to take a minute to say something that I feel like needs to be said. And so I had spoken somewhat about the history of the environmental justice movement in America and how it was an outgrowth of the civil rights movement. And one factor that I did not mention at that time, but which bears mentioning, and I think is also highly relevant in Australia, is also our history of the dispossession of the native inhabitants of our land, the dispossession of their land, the forced removal, the genocide. So we have Native Americans, we have Alaska Natives, and we have Native Hawaiians as the primary Indigenous people uh, in the lands that are now the United States. And I think we just need to take a moment to acknowledge that um, although perhaps things are heading in a good direction, neither Australia nor the United States has a stellar record (laughs) um, at relations with their Indigenous peoples. And that is intimately intertwined with land rights and resource rights. And those are the basis for environmental health and environmental quality. Yeah. And that's something I would support. And I think it's fantastic that we've got people who are now using data science in order to help these previously marginalized groups within the community. So on that note... For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? Yeah, well, it's really been a pleasure to be here on the podcast today. And if any listeners want to follow up, they can find me on LinkedIn, uh, just Robin Rotman, and send me a message and I will respond. And Amber? Likewise, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great discussion. And I'm also available on LinkedIn, Amber Spriggs. And um, I will get a picture of me up there soon for everyone to see. (laughs) And I'll put links to your LinkedIn pages in the show notes. And I'll also put a link to EJ screen in case people want to have a look at that. Cool. Oh, that'd be great. So thank you for joining me today. We really appreciate the opportunity. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.